Good morning and welcome everyone. This is Rona Palmer from Fluke Reliability. And thanks so much for joining us today for our best practices webinars. And just a moment to clarify, because as you know, as software and sensor providers, we offer a whole host of different webinars and educational events. But in our best practice webinar series, we focus more on maintenance strategies, not so much specific products, but on strategies and tactics that really help you drive performance. And we invite various guest speakers to share their background and experience. And I'm always thrilled and really pleased to have back with us today, Nancy Regan. Hey there, Nancy. Thank you, Rona. Um, who's a well-known RCM practitioner. And she's going to be presenting today's topic on how to use failure modes and effects analysis, or FMEA, to get the reliability that you need. And for those of you that don't know Nancy, she's the author of the book, RCM Solution, and the president of the International RCM Certification Committee. And you may also be familiar with her blog and her online RCM training materials, or maybe I've seen Nancy at some of the conferences and events that she speaks at, including being a keynote for our Accelerate Conference. And good morning, Nancy, and thanks again for, for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Nancy, before um, we get started, can you maybe, we have a, a real packed house today and we'd like to give people a few minutes to log in and maybe you can set the stage for today's topic and share with our listeners a little background on what they can expect to learn today. Sure, Rona. Um, what I really love about this topic is FMEA or FMEA or failure modes and effects analysis. When it's done properly, it sets the foundation for a reliability program, for getting the reliability that we need from our equipment. It gets us back to basics and it helps us not to get ahead of ourselves. And I've got a really good example of this because even I think in our own personal lives, or I'll speak for myself personally, we can fall prey to some of the pitfalls that we're gonna talk about today. So I, I have a reliability vlog and I, I, make, I make videos about reliability-centered maintenance and about reliability in general and I compare it to kind of everyday things. Well, when I first started vlogging, I bought, this is called the Smooth, and it cost me $150. This was, even before I made a video, I thought, oh, if I have the perfect gimbal, I'm going to be able to make fantastic videos. So I spent $150 and the whole point of it is, you know, you put your camera in here and it dampens out the, the motion so you can walk, um, you know, you can be moving around and your, your viewers aren't watching you, you know, bounce up and down and you're not giving them vertigo. And of course there's this great uh, advertisement for it. There's someone on a skateboard and doing all this funky stuff. And I'm thinking, now that's what I need. That's what will make my videos awesome. So I spend $150 and um, I spent probably about three hours. I downloaded and deleted three different apps. It didn't work. I put my phone in it and I turned it on and this thing is flapping all over the place. I could not get it to work. My husband couldn't get it to work. 
I mean, I have a degree in engineering and I don't know, maybe I'm embarrassing myself by saying that, but I could not get the smooth to work. So now what I have is $150 prop for my presentations. But the whole point is that a, a gimbal, a smooth, does not make any vlog or any educational material really good. It maybe can enhance it, but what's important is that I have a topic that people are interested in hearing about, that I have a coherent way of um, talking about it and presenting the material in the video, um, making sure that all of that stuff, that my foundation is really firm, that's what's important when it comes to making a video or really anything in life. So a gimbal can enhance my videos, but it can't make it amazing. What makes it really good is my material and my delivery. So of course I chunked this move and what I did is I just took my cell phone and um, this is what I've done for the last like maybe three or four years. I just hold, if you see me looking to the left, it's because I'm looking to see what you're saying. I just hold my cell phone up, you know, and this is what I do and my arm starts to shake after a while, but it works. So it's only just recently, um, I haven't even tried it yet, but I bought myself um, a vlogging camera. So I'm super excited to use this, but it's, it's completely pertinent to what we're talking about because it's been three years now. So now I, I get how to make a video, how to write the script and you know what I wanna say. So now I can move on to something a little bit more fancy now that I have my foundation set. And that's what FMEA does for us as responsible custodians, is it kind of sets the scene and makes sure we don't get ahead of ourselves. So today what I wanna do is I wanna talk about reliability. I wanna talk about FMEA in general and what it does for us and why we do it. And then we're gonna get into the technical aspects of it. But before we do, I would like to know a little bit about um, your experience with FMEA. So Rona, um, if you would launch the first uh, poll question. Sure. So let's go ahead and um, again, these questions are only, your answers are only in aggregate. So please just let us know when it comes to reliability, what's your single, oops, sorry for the typo, biggest challenge or frustration right now? Is it lack of support, perhaps poor reliability culture, lack of funding, are you too busy? Maybe you can just share one. And again, just so we can get a feel overall and sort of benchmark here where you are in this journey and what your biggest challenge is when it comes to reliability. All right, and you just type your answer right into the poll. All right, it looks like we've got most of the votes in. We'll leave them up a few more seconds. Oh, still some more people had to think about it a little bit. I'm really curious to see, um, and maybe if if your answer is not on that, or you maybe have a close second, maybe you could put that in the chat, just what, what it is. Sure, that's a great idea. Okay, looks like the votes are in, so let me share them. Um, it looks like when it comes to lack of management support, that was 17%. Poor reliability culture was 36%. Lack of funding, not doesn't seem to be uh, much of a factor, Nancy, only 7%. Mm -hmm. And then the largest was too busy 
putting out fires <laughs> to work on more proactive strategies. Okay, and so Rona, um, I'm not surprised by these answers, mm -hmm. but FMEA can help with both of those, and we're going to talk about why. A hundred percent. So I, I'm so thank you for answering that question, Rona. We've got one more. Yeah. Okay, now if we go on to poll question two, and let's go and launch that. You may want to advance your slide also, Nancy. Yep. Um, so now we're, we're just wondering a quick yes or no. Have you ever been directly involved in doing an FMEA? Again, a quick answer, yes or no. And again, these are just for our listeners, not for organizers or panelists. All right, looks like we've got three quarters of the votes. We'll leave this open just a few more seconds. And okay, so Nancy, in this one, interesting, it's fairly close. 58% say yes, they have been directly involved in doing a FAMIA, as you called it, yep. and 42% are saying no, they have not. Okay, okay, good. And um... Uh, that's great that we have a nice mix of experience and this presentation is appropriate for someone who you know has had experience with it as well as maybe if, if you haven't had any hands-on so it's it's really good for everyone excellent okay well before we um, let Nancy take it away with her slides a few very quick thing guys because I know you want to hear Nancy speak and not me but a few housekeeping items. We are recording today's session, and so your phones are muted to minimize any background noise. But Nancy's agreed to take questions anytime during today's presentation. So mm -hmm. please type your questions in the questions feature in GoToWebinar, and I'll go ahead and um, read them to Nancy as soon as I can. Also, if you'd like to get a copy of today's slide, she has agreed to do so. And just please let us know, there'll be a survey that will launch when we conclude the webinar, and you can request a copy of the slides. And also, we'll be posting the recording on the Excelix community website, as we always do. So that's it for housekeeping. So over to you, Nancy, to take it away. Okay, thank you, Rona. So why FMEA? So I, I want to start by first talking about, in generality, about FMEA. And essentially, it's the place to begin when it comes to reliability. And what I want to go over is I want to talk about how reliability is actually designed. And reliability is designed in two different ways. Reliability is designed both literally and figuratively. So when we talk about reliability being designed literally, um, you know, we have a machine or a system or whatever it is, and really we're, we're at the mercy of its design, so to speak, right? Meaning we can't get anything more out of a machine than it was designed to do, right? In other words, it's inherent reliability. Uh, it is what it is. But as equipment custodians, we also figuratively design reliability because once we have a piece of, our, of, of equipment in our organization, we have to now deal with it, right? 
So inherent reliability means how long something will last. Inherent reliability doesn't mean how long something will last with no failures. Inherent reliability means how long something will last when it is protected by the right proactive maintenance and other actions. So once we take control of this equipment, there are all kinds of things that we do to it, right? We've got obviously proactive maintenance. That's like, you know, the, the most common thing. But there are a whole host of other things that we do to design our reliability, whether we're not even aware of it or thinking about it in that way. We've got um, the kind of training programs that we have. We've got operating procedures. We have emergency procedures. We have a whole host, um, our supply, what, what is our supply chain like? There is a whole host of things that go into taking care of a machine. And why do we do any of these things? We do it to make sure we get what we need from it. And that's what reliability is. But the thing about this is, the quality of the choices that we make and the actions that we take when it comes to our machines to a very large degree dictate the kind of reliability that we get from our equipment. And so it's really important to start with FMEA because the first step of FMEA is when we, we write functions. It's when we actually design, we actually define what we need from a piece of equipment. We're actually defining the reliability we want. Now, from there, we have to make sure that we take care of the machines properly, right? We've got to make decisions. But there's another really important part of FMEA, and that is failure modes, right? Failure modes and effects analysis. Well, my mentor, John Mowbray, taught me, he used to say all the time that we manage physical assets at the failure mode level. Now, before we go any further, I do just want to make sure we're all on the same page when it comes to the term failure mode. Um, I got myself into a little bit of a pickle one time when I was I was on the, <clears throat> the IPT, the integrated um, program team for RCM when I was a Navy employee. And um, it was, I was representing common support equipment and um, there was the Naval Air Systems Command, they were represented too. And we all did RCM, but, uh, you know, a little bit differently. And when I say differently, some of it, we use different terminology and that kind of thing. Well, when I use the term failure mode, I'm talking about what specifically causes functional failure. So for me, I use the term failure cause and failure mode synonymously. Now, if you don't agree, that's fine. Just for purposes to, of today, know that I mean a failure mode. Now, when I was in this meeting, when I was in this IPT meeting, um, one of the guys was at a flip chart and he was going on and on. And I was I was actually getting to the point where I was disturbed because I, I, I take all of this stuff very personally. And, you know, we almost started to get maybe a little bit heated together. And then we finally figured out that his understanding of a failure mode was different from mine. So when I use the term, I'm talking about what specifically causes um, functional failure. Now, here's why this is such an important step. So John Mowbray said we manage physical assets at the failure mode level. But he also said that failure modes are the currency of physical asset management. 
Now, if we think about it just like money, right, just like American dollars, we've got $100 bills and we've got 20s and we've got 10s and 5s and 1s. And just like when it comes to money, really, this $100 bill is way more important than this one, right? So if I'm walking around in the supermarket and I have a one in my hand and, you know, I, I drop a couple of dollars, not a big deal. I mean, not ideal. I certainly don't want to be losing money, but it's not a big deal. But if I've got a couple of hundred dollars in my hand and I drop those, well, that could have a more significant impact on me. Now, when we talk about impact, we're talking about, in reliability language, we're talking about consequences, right? What are the consequences of me losing a dollar versus a hundred? And this is another thing, assessing consequences that FMEA can help us with. And it's an essential part of reliability. So pause on that for a second. So when it comes to failure modes, then as responsible custodians, we have to make sure that we identify those failure modes that could stop us from getting what we need from our machines. In other words, that would stop us from getting the reliability that we need from our machines. Because once we do that, then we can figure out how to manage them. But if we start by saying, okay, what maintenance am I gonna do? Well, you see, you're, it's, like you're, it's like we're getting ahead of ourselves because we haven't even identified what we're trying to preserve, what reliability we're trying to get out of the machine. Okay, so now let's get into the technical aspect of FMEA. And Rona, I don't know if there, we're gonna kind of move into more technical stuff now. If anyone has any questions about that stuff yet, I could pause. No, I don't think so. We are experiencing okay. a little bit of a background noise from time to time, a little bit of scratchiness, but I think you're still coming through clearly, but okay. um, that's the only could, feedback so far. So. If it gets bad, I could, um, do you want me to try a headset? Um, no, I think we're okay. okay. I think it's still, uh, it's still intelligible, so we'll keep okay. going. Thanks. Okay, good. Um, just put in the chat if it's unbearable and I'll, I'll put a headset in. Um, okay, so the mechanics of FMEA, well, failure modes and effects analysis, it, it, it consists of four things, functions, functional failures, failure modes, and failure effects. Now, functions, there's no mistake, there's no coincidence that FMEA starts with functions, because here's something else that I learned from John. John used to say that reliability isn't a thing on its own but rather reliability is sprinkled amongst all of the functions of a piece of equipment. So that's why we start by identifying what we need from our equipment. Now, one of the pitfalls that a lot of organizations fall into when they write their functions is they write what the thing was designed to do. But when we do an FMEA the right way, a functional FMEA, we write what we need it to do. And this is really important for several reasons, but one I'll mention right now is, and maybe you can silently answer this question for yourself, is how many times in your career have has a piece of equipment been maybe newly procured and implemented in the organization, 
or maybe it's an old piece of equipment, but requirements change, and now you suddenly realize you can't get what you need from a piece of equipment. In my experience of doing RCM analyses over the last 25 years, that's one of the biggest causes of chronic failure, is that organizations are trying to get something from a machine that it just can't do. But this step in FMEA is, is so, I mean, it really is, it's not rocket science. You know, it's basic, sitting down and figuring out what you need from a piece of equipment. But oftentimes it's so basic that it's overlooked. And that's not the fault of anyone. You know, we're all human beings and none of us is perfect. So as human beings, we tend to focus on, you know, the more detailed stuff, the difficult stuff that needs to get done. And it's easy to overlook the simple. So that's why it's so important to start by writing functions properly. Now, when it comes to um, failure modes, a failure mode, this is when we identify what specifically causes functional failure. And then for each failure mode that we've written, we write a failure effect. Now, a failure effect is simply a story of what would happen if we did nothing to predict or prevent the failure. Now, we're going to go over all of this in a little more detail, but I just wanted to set the stage. Maybe for those of you who haven't actively done an FMEA, th these are the this is the mechanics of a FMEA. That's it. Functions, functional failures, failure modes, and failure effects. When we write our failure effect properly, it helps us to identify the consequences of failure. Remember, we talked about the money. So... I know intuitively that the consequences of losing $200 is much more severe than $2, but when it comes to our machines, it's sometimes not so intuitive. And so that's what failure effects help us to do. Okay. The problem when it comes to reliability is that FMEA is often done poorly. And so I want to share some of those pitfalls with you. So number one, what I see more often than not, and I, I have a poor example to show you that's coming up. Number one, FMEA is often done just as a matter of routine. Um, it's, you know, uh, we've heard the term pencil whipping, right? Kind of pencil whip the functions and, you know, get it done so we can get to the good stuff of figuring out if we, what kind of maintenance we should do. Another pitfall is that it is often done just by an individual or only part of a reliability team, you know, like um, maybe systems engineers or design engineers, you know, they maybe one or more get together and do the FMEA, but they don't involve everyone else in the FMEA. And really, I know everyone has heard it over and over, but who's responsible for reliability? I mean, everyone. And when we say everyone, uh, let's just take, for example, a compressor, you know, the operators, the maintainers, um, the engineers, um, people from instrumentation. It takes, um, you know, spare parts, um, logisticians, really anyone who has anything to do directly with that piece of equipment is part of the reliability team. And those people, all those people have different perspectives. The perspective and experience of an operator is different from a maintainer, is different from an engineer. And when you get all those perspectives together, it's like magic happens. Okay, the third reason why FMEA is often done poorly is because it's just not carried out properly. 
And let's look at what let's look at what that means. Let's look at some examples. And let's start with functions. So this this is an example of an analysis um, that I was contracted to review and give my opinion about. So let's start with the first function. So it was I've, I've taken out any information that that could have um, indicated where this came from, but this was the function that was written to provide hydraulic fluid to the system. Now, this is an example of writing a function just as a matter of routine, right? It's kind of pencil whipping it. Well, we've just written the function for pretty much every hydraulic, you know, every hydraulic system on the planet. Um, if we are, when we talk about what functions are is actually, it's when we define the reliability we need that's really inadequate. So here's an example. This is actually an example from a CH47 analysis. Um, here's a, a primary function for a hydraulic system to provide redundant flight control hydraulic power, 2,500 to 3,200 PSI, to operate the actuators anytime the transmissions are operating. I watered it down a little bit, but for example purposes, you can see the how the level of detail is there. You know, I specify how much hydraulic power we need, right? Why do we need it? What is it serving? And when do we need it to serve? So I've more clearly defined the kind of reliability that I need from my flight control system. Okay, so now let's talk about failure modes. And I wanna pause here because this is, functions and, and failure modes, it's like the two biggest areas of mistakes. And if you get these wrong, it, you know, it almost doesn't matter what, what comes downstream, okay? Um, when This is the way I, li I like to think of things simply. When it comes to failure modes, I like to think about a failure mode that it puts us on the right road and it sends us in the right direction. And, the, and really our destination as asset managers is we need to be able to identify appropriate failure management strategies, right? We need to come up with appropriate proactive maintenance and the right default strategies. And when I say a default strategy, maybe we need to failure find our safety systems, right? Like testing fire alarms every year, blowing smoke at smoke detectors, making sure that pressure safety valves will release at the appropriate pressure. That's not proactive maintenance because we're looking to see if there's actually a failure has already occurred. So it's a default strategy um, in the context of um, reliability. Um, no scheduled maintenance. You know, there are a lot of failure modes that we consciously decide we're not gonna do anything about it. But in order to get to the right destination, our failure mode needs to be formulated properly. And so that's why I like to think about it um, as a road. Remember, John Mowbray, John Mowbray taught me, we manage physical assets at the failure mode level. And if that is the case where, um, you know, clearly that is the case, then we have to make sure we write them appropriately. So let's take a look at the failure modes um, on this example. And again, this is real world, okay? So just to review, we've got a function to provide hydraulic fluid to the system. We've got a functional failure of no flow, you know, could it be more vague? Um, and now let's look at some of these failure modes. Catastrophic pump failure, loss of fluid, 
Um, for low flow, we've got pump cavitation, clogged suction strainer, um, pump is bypassed. But the, the problem with these is if we're writing failure modes and we need to get on the right road to get us to the right destination, you can just see intuitively that it's not written in enough detail, right? Because catastrophic pump failure, well, what's missing there? What don't I know? I don't know what specifically caused the pump to catastrophically fail. And it's very important to ask that the question that way, not how did it fail, not well, why did it fail? But when you ask the question, what specifically caused it? It's kind of like, um, it's like a, a reliability hook in people's minds where you really get them thinking um, in the right direction. Okay, so we need to get more specific there. Now, I want to give you just, let's talk about a couple of um, real world examples, right? So let's talk failure modes. Um, I drive um, a, Subaru, a 2014 Subaru Forester, right? So I could say oil fails. I'm just going to put my webcam up so I make sure you're seeing what I'm saying. Okay. So I have a 2014 Subaru Forester. I obviously maintain my oil system, right? Now, if I'm doing an FMEA and I write it, I write my failure modes for the oil like they're written in this poor example of an FMEA. I would write it like this, right? Oil fails. Well, what am I supposed to do with that? I mean, you know, now I'm like over here twisting in the wind. I'm I'm lost driving in circles. Remember that it was a European vacation with Chevy Chase. You know, look, kids, there's Big Ben. Look, kids, there's Big Ben. Um, it's the same thing. So what I would ask myself or what I would ask a team is, what specifically causes the oil to fail? Well, my engine oil deteriorates due to normal use, right? Um, my Subaru Forester has a Boxster engine in it, and they are notorious. Um, I'll use the verb consume. The engine can just consume oil due to normal use, where every so often I need to check the dipstick and make sure I'm not too low, right? I don't want to wait for the light to come on because that's cutting it close, right? Oil, I, it, um, consume, oil gets consumed due to normal use. Um, my oil system could leak right so the thing about these failure modes is that they must be written at a level so that an appropriate failure management strategy can be developed right here here i cannot formulate an appropriate failure management strategy but here i can now notice the difference because what am i going to do because my oil deteriorates due to normal use in my 2014 Subaru Forester, I'm going to change the oil every 7,500 miles. Um, could, could I do oil analysis on it? It's in the realm of possibility. For my operating context, I'm just going to have it changed every 7,500 miles. For oil is consumed just due to normal use, well, every so often, I'm going to check the oil. You know, I don't know, maybe every third fuel stop, so to speak, or 
you know, however often um, I decide that it's appropriate. And we're going to get to how we figure out those intervals. Are, generally, we're going to get to that. And now here, the, you know, the system leaks, and that could be because of any number of things, right? Maybe I should get more specific, maybe not. In my case, uh, because it's my privately owned vehicle, you know, what I do from time to time is I look around, I, I make sure that I don't see any, you know, leaks in the driveway. Um, you know, a catastrophic leak, there's not much proactively we can do, but as owner of the vehicle, I can do, you know, it's kind of like doing rounds on equipment or doing a pre-flight on an airplane. You kind of look around and see if you've got anything going on. But the point to be made here is we have to write them in enough detail so that we can formulate an appropriate failure management strategy. Because you see, I have three different failure management strategies, but I couldn't have gotten there if it was written this way. Okay. So that's the point there about failure modes. One more quick example, because I have another example to bring up. Let's say, um, I don't know, let's just say we've got a fuel filter, right? What if we say filter fails? Well, again, it's not written at an appropriate level, right? I could say um, the filter clogs due to normal use. Um, we could say maybe if it has like a um, if it's a, if it's a paper filter, we could say that um, the filter media deteriorates due to normal use. Um, maybe it is installed improperly. So these two, right? We're talking about proactive maintenance for filter clogs. Maybe I'll replace it every so often on a scheduled basis. Maybe instead, I'll monitor differential pressure and I'll only replace the filter when I need to. For media deteriorates, well, if I know that after a year, I, I know I'm gonna have to replace it, then maybe I might do a scheduled replacement there for that. But let's look at this one. Installed improperly. One of the big areas to improve on reliability is very often overlooked in our industry. And one of our greatest resources as asset custodians, we also often overlook, and that is our equipment experts. Because there are latent failures, really, there are latent failures everywhere. It doesn't matter if you're making dog food or if you're an offshore oil platform or if you're an airplane or a train or whatever you, whatever manufacturing facility you're in. There are latent failures everywhere. Now, what is a latent failure? Well, I learned that term from um, an author named James Reason. He's written a lot of books on human error. But I, I personally don't love the term human error because it basically points fingers at people and, and it insinuates that someone did something wrong. But the question we have to ask is, did we set up our equipment experts for success or not? And I've got two examples. Okay, the first one, I love, I love yogurt and I love this, I love Oikos, there we go. I love Oikos lemon meringue yogurt. Love, love, love it. I actually eat it. I eat it every night for dessert um, after dinner. So 
Now, let me tell you something about me is that I I can't stand anything with a banana flavor. I, I really like fresh bananas, but I detest anything with a banana flavor, like banana bread. It just turns my stomach just smelling it. Well, I go to the store and I think I'm buying my lemon meringue, but this is what I actually buy. It's 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 banana yogurt, but I don't even see it. So I eat dinner, you know, I clean up and now I sit down to have my lemon yogurt for my dessert. And I pop the top off and I thought I might have smelled something that wasn't right, but it wasn't too strong. So I put a big spoonful of this in my mouth and I immediately knew, oh, my gosh, that's banana. That is that is awful. Um, so the reason I'm showing you about yogurt is because look at the packaging. You see that if you're if you're busy, if you're distracted, if you're not really paying attention like you should, you can very easily buy the banana instead of buying the lemon, which is what I did. Now that's just yogurt, no big deal, right? But you think about the equipment that you're responsible for. What if that is um, a, a valve, an important valve? Or what if that is a step in an operating procedure or a step in an emergency procedure that is vague, right? Or maybe missing altogether. And now disaster strikes. Now we're going to point fingers and blame someone because they did something wrong or didn't do something they should have done. When maybe it's because we didn't set them up for success, right? Because you know, we're, we're all busy. Um, obviously, we're busy with production, with operations, whatever it is that we're doing, and we're human beings. So it's easy to overlook things. Rona, I want to pause before the next example just to make sure you can still see and hear me. We can, and several questions have come in, Nancy. Okay. Would this be a good time to entertain a few? Definitely. Let's, yeah. Cool. Well, you talked about uh, failure modes uh, regarding equipment. Someone asked if, what is your opinion about expanding failure modes to include support systems for proactive maintenance, funding, logistics, training? What is your what is your take on that, Nancy? Okay, I'm a huge fan. Um, I personally love this question, and that's exactly where I'm going with this, because when I facilitate FMEA. I like to open up the scope of analysis, not to just the machine, but those things. And because if you're doing it the right way with equipment experts, they know the vulnerabilities, right? They know the vulnerabilities of the things that you just mentioned, Rona. They know that stuff because they live it. So when you when you ask the people the right people the questions, the the best part about documenting those those extra things in an FMEA is you get to document it, you write a failure mode for it, you can appropriately assess the consequences. But the most important part is now it is formally recorded. When you write the failure effect and you assess the consequences and you show what would happen if you didn't do something to fix that failure mode, now management can look and see. Oh, now they can see what the consequences are. So it gives you um, not fodder, not backup. I'm thinking of the wrong word, but I guess it, you've got now the backup to show, hey, we have to fix this and this is why. And now it's formally recorded. So absolutely 100% yes. Great. 
Um, we also had a listener ask, if you haven't yet established like a basic, you don't have the PM basics in place, let's say you haven't yet established a preventive maintenance mm -hmm. program, should you address that first? You know, maybe you can speak to where in your journey is the appropriate time to introduce failure mode analysis. Yes, no, um, this is the first, this is the place to start. And I, I'm, I'm getting to when we assign the tasks. This is where to begin, 100%. This is the first step is your FMEA. And but so that I don't forget it, Rona, um, I also want to make sure you don't have to do FMEA on everything in your organization, right? I mean, we live in the real world and not fantasy land. There's probably not enough time and resources to do FMEA on everything. So the place to start is even, you don't even need to begin with a formal criticality analysis. Start with the equipment that's causing you the most pain or costing you the most money or the most critical equipment. Just start somewhere and, and know that you don't have to do it on everything. And one last question, Nancy, before we let you move on is, someone asked if there's, what in your experience has been a good size for a team? If you wanna get started down this path, maybe you can speak to a little bit how to you know, kind of organize a team for FMEA. Okay, so I can give an example. Um, let's just say um, an industrial air compressor. You know, you're looking at probably like maybe five, four to seven people. So you want your operator, you want your maintainer, um, you'll need someone from instrumentation. Um, you'll need so operating maintainer, instrumentation, someone, I don't know what you would call it. Uh, I'll, I'll use the term logistics, maybe someone who is in charge of technical publications. You'll need your systems engineer. Um, you will need uh, maybe a, a, your reliability engineer. And then anyone else, if there's anything in particular about that system, any specialty, maybe you might need an electrician. And sometimes it happens a lot with electricians, depending on the system, of course. You don't need, like you, you may not need an electrician there the whole time. Maybe they could come in and out. But generally speaking, four to seven people. You, you know, you don't want a room full of 20 people because then you won't get anywhere. And the other thing to note, Rona, is when you're putting together an analysis, um, it's really important that middle management gets trained ahead of time on what it is you're trying to do, because we all know if you say I need an operator for a week or whatever, however long it is, they're going to give you the person that they can afford to, to lose. But you need the best. You need the person that they say, I can't give you this guy for a week. That's the person you want, because you know, just like anything, garbage in, garbage out, right? So you need the best. And I know it's not easy to, you know, we're, we're in a whirlwind with reactive reactive maintenance, right? We're, we're chasing our tail. And I mean, I don't have a magic wand. The answer is you just have to figure out a way to do it. Okay, thanks, Nancy. Uh, why don't you move on and, you know, we'll just take it okay. again. People can yep. just continue to ask, ask their questions. We'll okay, so in. one more example about failure modes because it's such an important um, topic. So the reason why I'm going through these examples is, yes, we need to put um, equipment-related failure modes like filters and pumps and valves and all of that, plus 
the ancillary um, issues that Rona, the, the person who asked that question, like with training and other resources, if we if we're maybe we're limited on other resources and that's causing us not to get the function from the machine, that goes in, as well as these um, what is often called human error in our world. So I wanted to show you one last example. So I have an orange tabby cat. His name is Mako. And he has asthma, believe it or not. That, that's a whole other story. I have a vlog about that when I took him to the vet. But anyway, this cat has to get albuterol two to three times a day for his asthma. Now, I'm going to make sure you can see this. So the vet wrote in this prescription for albuterol that he needs to take 0.2 milliliters two to three times a day. Well, I go to the Publix. It was actually um, the Publix. It was it was filled at a you know a human's pharmacy, and they gave me this syringe to administer the medicine. Now, if you can see it, it's it's in increments of of milliliters. So that goes from one to ten milliliters. So based upon what the vet wanted me to give them. It's, it's that first hash mark, right? Well, I mean, you know, we're all technical people. How am I gonna draw? I, I can't successfully draw 0.2 out of that. That's the first issue. But the other issue is if I wasn't technically minded or even if I am technically minded, but maybe I'm busy, I'm distracted, I'm overtired, whatever it is. What if I'm not paying attention and I give Mako two milliliters of albuterol, I could very likely stop his breathing and he could die. So this was an error, in my opinion, on the pharmacy's part. They should have given me this syringe, which let's see if you can see it. Oh, rats, it's the lighting. Well, anyway, you the, the increments, I'm sorry, you can't see it, but the ink, there we go. The increments are in, this whole syringe is one milliliter. So they're in increments of 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3. So in this syringe, I just give Marco this much and I can successfully fill the syringe that much. Now, subsequently, the second time I, I filled the prescription, um, the, the tech gave me the right syringe. So the reason I say this again is your equipment experts know where these vulnerabilities lie, but most of the time they're not going to just come and tell you, hey, I found a vulnerability. You have to ask them, and, and FMEA is how you ask them. Okay. So let's move on. We're, we're nearly done now. Let's move on to failure effects. So a failure effect, we write a failure effect for every failure mode in our FMEA. And um, we already said it has to be written in enough detail so failure consequences can be assessed. Well, if you look at these failure effects, right, loss of all functions, noise, visible oil, open and inspect. I mean, these aren't even failure effects. They have to be written so we know if we need to take action on something, right? Now, this is a properly written failure effect. This is, this is an example of one function and one failure mode um, for an air compressor. Now, I won't read it all to you, and, and you will get these slides after the fact. So let me just point out a few things. Notice how here in the function, I don't just say to provide compressed air. You see how detailed it is? Detailed oil-free. I've got temperature. I've got um, output pressure. 
uh, rise to surge, um, what portion of plant air that that compressor is making up. So I've got all the details in there. So basically, if this compressor did this all the time, I would walk away and say, hey, that's a really reliable compressor, right? But it's important to get detailed because then we can ask, well, what would specifically cause us not to do this? And in this example, you notice how we don't just say main drive shaft fails, right? We've got that the lubrication dissipates. And you see, again, I'm not gonna read it to you, but it's a very detailed failure effect. Now, you may say, wow, that takes a lot of work. And yes, it does. But I'm gonna tell you something Something else about FMEA, if you do it right, with the right people, it is actually like a training course for the people in the room. I've had equipment experts in my analyses who've been working on equipment for 20, 30, 35 years. And in every instance, they've walked away at least learning one thing about a piece of equipment. The other thing is you can create a troubleshooting guide based upon all the information in this FMEA. Um, it's really valuable for so many reasons. Okay, now I remember asking John Mowbray, you know, my specialty is, is in reliability-centered maintenance. And I remember asking John, well, why would someone just do FMEA? Why wouldn't they do reliability-centered maintenance? Well, he called FMEA a bite out of the middle, meaning it's like, you, you know, you just take that bite and then you leave it because you go through all this work. But the next step is to now make decisions. How are we going to manage each failure mode? And that's that's in, now I'm about to answer that question, Rona, that that other person posed is, do we start with maintenance tasks or do we start with FMEA? See, FMEA sets you up now to make decisions. Um, if you haven't heard of reliability-centered maintenance, it's a seven-step process. You know, in, uh, in a nutshell, it helps us to figure out what maintenance and default strategies we need to do for our equipment. But you notice that RCM, the first four steps are FMEA. It's what we just went through. So see, I often hear people say, well, should I do FMEA or should I do RCM? When you do RCM, you're already doing FMEA. Step five is assessing consequences. And when you write your failure effect appropriately, you're set up to assess consequences. And then from there, you take each failure mode and you decide what kind of proactive maintenance and or default strategies you should do. Now, I'm also asked uh, often, should I do RCM or should I do CBM? See, RCM is not a maintenance program. RCM helps you figure out what maintenance you should do. And can, the consideration of condition-based maintenance is baked right into the process. It's in step number six. So um, this is a very bare bones RCM decision diagram. But the easy way to think about the RCM decision diagram is, have you ever tried to put oil in your car without a funnel? It's just like it spills everywhere, it's, an, it's a nightmare. Well, the way you can think about reliability-centered maintenance and this decision diagram is once you've done your FEMIA, now you take every failure mode one by one and you put it 
through this funnel that is the LCM decision diagram. And you can see at the top, you assess consequences. Let's say we're going to go down evident operational. Now we get to, now OSIM gives us very powerful tools for figuring out, should we do CBM, a scheduled restoration, a scheduled rest replacement, or maybe a default strategy? And it gives us tools specifically to figure out how often to do each task and to make sure that our tasks are technically the right thing to do, right? Because we may have um, a machine that's working great. And then someone goes and does maintenance on it that doesn't even need to be done. And they, they break something in the process and they destabilize an otherwise stable system. So if you're going to do FEMIA, um, unless you've got another reason to just do FEMIA, you know, go, go for it and um, just do full-blown OCM. And then you get to decide the maintenance that you want to do. So Rona, I'm about to wrap up, but I've got a little thing here that's talking about my audio. Can you hear me okay? Yes, um, there's a little bit of scratchiness, but it's fine to proceed. Okay, okay. So that's it. I mean, this presentation is about FMEA. Um, I can do a whole, I could do a whole training course just on the decision diagram, but just know that after FMEA, what you can do is dump your Philly modes into an OCM decision diagram and then make the appropriate decisions. Okay, so FMEA done well is it's done thoughtfully meaning we don't pencil whip our failure modes and our functions and our failure effects. We think about them thoughtfully. We do it with the entire reliability team. We do it with the people who know the equipment best, and we carry out the process properly. That's FMEA done well. So that's everything that I wanted to talk about today. Um, I, I, I would be delighted to answer any of your questions. If you would like to contact me directly, there is my email. If you would like to take my free course on reliability-centered maintenance, just go to this URL, rcmtrainingonline.com slash overview. And I'd be delighted if you'd follow me on LinkedIn. And I have a goal to get to 1,000 subscribers on YouTube by the end of the year. So you could just go on YouTube and search RCM Training Online, and you'll, my, my page will come up. So... I'd love a subscribe if, you, if you're a YouTube user. So thank you so much um, for your attention today. John Mowbray also taught me that uh, as human beings, time is our most valuable asset and you chose to spend your time with me today. And for that, I am sincerely grateful. So thank you. Thank you, Nancy. All right, well, we have uh, several more questions that came in. Okay. And let's see how many we can get through before the top of the hour. Uh, it's okay. always, uh, uh, such an engaging topic. Um, we had a couple questions regarding new plants and new equipment and what things you can do when you're more in the early design stage. You don't have a history, a failure history, to kind of set up a new program so it's right from the beginning. Can you speak to that, Nancy? Yeah, definitely. That's the best time for you to do your FAMIA. And I can, I have a real world example. So when I, I, first started doing reliability-centered maintenance, I was a, a US Navy civilian employee and we were doing RCM on support equipment. And um, there was an engine air start unit that was to be used on the deck of aircraft carriers and the Navy was procuring a new one. Now we were already like four or five years into our RCM program and the program office recognized the value of RCM. They were 100% behind it. 
So before they even signed the final papers to buy the ISTOT unit, because by this time in the last four or five years, we had learned our lessons, right? We bought things in the past and it didn't work right from the outset. So we assemble a team of Navy equipment experts on an ISTOT unit that we already have. But the Navy paid for two of the German engineers to fly over for a week and, and do actually do RCM on it. But of course, FMEA, as you just saw, is a very big chunk of it. And the, I'll just give you the punchline. One of the biggest takeaways is I will never forget it. Um, one of the German engineers sat back and he went like this. He went, huh. And he said, I had no idea how harsh the operating environment was on the deck of an aircraft carrier. Now, I was really lucky as a Navy employee, I got to go out twice on an aircraft carrier and I was on deck during uh, operations. I mean, at night, it's dark, it's hard to see. I, I mean, you know, the ship is really moving. It's noisy, it's windy, it's busy. There are airplanes being catapulted and taken off at the same time, it's insane. But the German engineer had no idea what it was like. When we were done with that analysis, they walked away with three design changes and they had four changes to their uh, manufacturer recommended um, maintenance for us based upon our harsh operating environment. So even if it's new, you still have people in your organization who understand the operating environment. And so from the outset, you can head off a lot of headaches at the pass. So I guess that was a little long-winded answer, but it's it was a it was a really it's a valuable story and a valuable lesson I think. Right, and Nancy, you um, mentioned about when you were giving the example of your Subaru, you know how you do certain things along intervals, and are there any you know when you're setting up a program, uh, any uh, tools, programs, statistical tools, software that you've seen that have been effective in knowing how to set up the appropriate intervals? Okay, the, the most effective way to set up intervals for the majority of failure modes um, is to ask your equipment experts, right? So let me just, let me show this really quickly. So when it comes to my engine oil, right, I change it every 7,500 miles. And so this is, if anyone is aware of the six failure patterns, this is failure pattern B, where this is age and this is the conditional probability of failure, right? So if we know we have a Philly mode that behaves this way, which is how my engine oil behaves, I know that when I have my engine oil replaced, I know that for my engine at about 7,500 miles, if I don't change my oil, um, the, the difference between probability of failure and conditional probability of failure is this. It's that on the condition that my oil reaches 7,500 miles, I know that the probability of failure is going to start to drastically increase. So I take action before that happens and I change my oil. So that this, this is in the context of RCM is called a useful life, right? It's, it is not MTBF. That is an average. We do not use MTBF to, to define intervals for maintenance tasks, okay? For scheduled replacements and restorations, we use useful life. But we could also use we could also do oil analysis, and that brings us to the P2F interval, where the x-axis is age and the y-axis is resistance to failure. 
So depending upon what it is, I mean, let's just take a simple V-belt as an example, right? If you if you inspect a V-belt every so often and you start to see there are maybe some cracks and frays, you know that it's in the process of failing. And if you don't change it, it will eventually fail and the belt will break. Well, this interval is called the P2F interval. So the key, this is called the potential failure condition, right? So the key to condition-based maintenance this is how you set intervals for condition-based maintenance. And I've, I've yet to see an organization that has a database full or a software program that can give you these intervals because they're often heavily reliant on operating context and operating environment. But what I have also seen over and over that in the vast majority of cases, when you ask your equipment experts the right questions, they can answer this, right? Because the question would be, okay, Joe, um, once you start to see that the belt is showing evidence of um, cracks and frays, about how long do we have until the belt fails? That's what you're asking. We're not asking how long it lasts. We're not asking about the useful life. We're asking about how quickly, this is the key about condition-based maintenance, is the question is how quickly does failure occur once the potential failure condition is detectable? So this is this is the essence, essentially. You know, there are of course more details, but this is how we come up with maintenance task intervals. And I would say the first place you turn to is equipment experts. Now, are there maybe some complex failure modes where some software could help, or maybe a manufacturer could help? I mean, sure. But for the vast majority, your equipment experts can answer the questions. Well, thank you so much, Nancy, for, for sharing that. And well, we've had, sorry, we've had so many questions come in, but we're at the allotted time. So um, I guess we'll, we'll call this a wrap. But thank you so much. And as Nancy indicated, uh, you know, please take advantage of some of the additional resources. Don't let the dialogue stop. Uh, connect with her on LinkedIn and YouTube, you know, as you, uh, we've had such great feedback, Nancy, on what you have to share. So we'd like to help facilitate keeping the dialogue going. But thank you. Well, um, thanks again to Nancy and to all of our listeners today and the Fluke Reliability team for taking time out of your busy days to engage with us. And um, when we close the webinar, we'll have a survey question uh, where you can request a copy of the slides, but also tell us topics that experts like Nancy, who are so passionate about these topics, and others can share. What is it? What's on your mind? What will be of most help to you? And our next webinar, uh, it's two weeks from today, we'll have John Burnett, one of our uh, fluke vibration experts, will be kind of doing a very nice follow-on talking about root cause analysis and failure modes and how you build that into a maintenance strategy. So again, thank you so much, Nancy, and thanks to our listeners. Um, and we'll, uh, we'll have a survey as soon as we end the webinar. Uh, please let us know how we did and thanks for listening. And thanks, Nancy. We'll catch you all the next time. Thank you so much, Rona. It was a sincere pleasure. Thank you for your time, everyone. Take care, guys.